you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, looking at verse 14, continuing our series going through the Ten Commandments as we've been doing for the last several weeks, uh, except for last week when we took a small break while I was out of town. I appreciate uh, that Noah Pratt, our intern, was able to uh, come in and fill in for me just to be able to make sure that the Word still preached. I appreciate his ability to do that and his skill in doing that. We worked together on that sermon, and I hope that you guys were all blessed by that. Uh, I know that I'm thankful to be able to have somebody like him able to step in uh, on the weeks that I'm gone and uh, just encouraged by his ability that he's better at his age than uh, I was when I was at his age. Uh, But if you have your Bibles this morning, we're continuing our look through the Ten Commandments, looking at the Seventh Commandment this morning in Exodus chapter 20 in verse 14. It says this, You shall not commit adultery. Some people uh, tend to have an ear for song lyrics. They can hear it one time, and then they know the whole thing. They know the whole song just from that one time through. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I uh, tend to mishear those lyrics and to sing the wrong words repeatedly for, for years sometimes. And maybe the most obvious example that I can remember from my childhood was one that I was so confident about. I would sing these lyrics at the top of my lungs, walking through the house, uh, because I just knew these are the words, I liked the song, and it was something that I just was very sure about, very confident in. And it went like this. If you like cheese enchiladas and getting caught in the rain. Yeah, that sounded right to me. It it made sense to me. Being a uh, pastor's kid and seven years old, I didn't really know what pina coladas were. Uh, But I knew that I did like cheese enchiladas and getting caught in the rain sounded kind of fun to me. Uh, But I don't know how long people let me think that those were the lyrics before someone eventually corrected me. My family, who claims to love me, just let me walk around thinking that those were the lyrics probably for years before someone finally said, "That's, that's not what that song says. And whenever someone corrects your song lyrics, the first thing that you do is you go up and you look up the whole song to see what else you're missing. And for that song, the... Pina Colada song, Escape, by Rupert Holmes. Yes, the the lyric that I misheard was actually in the title of the song. When you look up the lyrics to that song, you'll discover that it's not the happy song that it sounds like. It sounds like something that's lighthearted, something that's fun. But whenever you read the whole lyrics, it's a sad song. This guy is trying actively to cheat on his wife with someone who took out a personal ad in the paper. He and this person who took out the ad, this woman, they decide that they are going to run away together. And then whenever she walks in to meet him to do that, he sees, he finds out that it's actually the woman he's trying to cheat on who is the one who took out the ad that he answered and with whom he is now trying to cheat. And then they both just laugh. They rediscover what they used to like about each other to begin with. It's insane. It's ridiculous. It's not a happy song. It's a sad song. It's an adultery song. It's a song about two people trying to have an affair and failing. And as we'll see today, it's a song about adultery, even though they failed in following through. And adultery is our topic today. So we'll examine God's command not to commit adultery by answering the same four questions that we have for each commandment so far. 
Uh, Question number one, why is adultery wrong? Why should we obey this command? Question number two, how do we break this commandment? What does that look like for us to commit adultery? Question number three, how has Christ fulfilled or transformed this commandment? In light of his gospel in the New Testament, how has he fulfilled and transformed this command? And then question number four, what do we do to obey this command now as New Testament Christians in light of Christ's fulfillment or transformation of it? So let's look at our first question this morning. Why is committing adultery wrong? Why should we not cheat on our spouses? Well, beyond the simple fact that God is telling you not to in these verses, you shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't have sex with someone who is not your spouse because you're breaking your covenant commitment when you do that. You're breaking your promise when you do that. Marriage is designed by God to be the joining of one man and one woman in union until death. When you got married, you made vows to have and to hold them not someone else, to love and cherish them, not someone else. Even if you wrote your own vows and you didn't specifically include uh, in your vows that you would not commit adultery, that's not like a loophole that you found in the system. The natural covenant order of marriage is that each partner remains faithful to the other. Sexually, yes, but as we'll see, this goes beyond even that furthest act, that most egregious and obvious act of adultery. When God made man and woman in the garden and gave them the gift of marriage, from that point forward, from that instance with those two, it is just them in that union. There's no one else. Marriage by nature is exclusive. An open marriage simply just isn't a biblical concept. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, when God gave marriage to his people. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, there's no need for shame within the bounds of marital sex, but when those lines get crossed, when That one flesh union happens with someone who is not your spouse, your marriage partner. That's where shame actually enters the picture. Committing adultery breaks the covenant order that is marriage. It breaks that natural order that is marriage. But adultery is also wrong, not just because you made a promise that you're now breaking. It's also wrong because it reduces the other adulterer to a commodity to be consumed rather than a person to be respected. Committing adultery wrongs not just the jilted spouse, the one you committed adultery against, and not just yourself for falling into sin, you as the adulterer, but it also hurts the mistress, the adulteress, the person with whom you are committing the adultery. What it does is it turns that other person into a tool into an instrument in your hands to destroy them in sin, to consume their sexual availability in the pursuit of your own lustful desire. And especially as we see this concept expand due to Christ's words, the predatory nature of adultery becomes even more clear. Those who are the most vulnerable, women, young girls, those are the ones who are so often victimized by this, with or without their consent. Those are the ones who are used to satisfy the sick fantasies of someone who absolutely does not love them. Someone who wants to consume them. 
Jen Wilkin, in my study this week, brought out this idea well. She said, lust itself, which we're going to see is adultery, is in the same sense that anger is murder. Lust itself is an act of contempt, reducing someone to a source of sexual gratification and nothing more. If the sixth command against murder prohibited regarding our neighbor as expendable, the seventh prohibits regarding our neighbor as consumable. So adultery is wrong because it consumes your neighbor rather than loves your neighbor, which is exactly what Christ has called us to. But perhaps the reason that adultery is so destructive, the reason it wreaks such havoc in our lives whenever it happens, is because adultery ultimately is unfaithfulness toward God. A recurring earthly picture throughout the Bible of the covenant love between God and His people is marriage. Our marriages between man and woman are to be patterned after the marriage between Christ and his church. So when the nation of Israel, God's people, his bride, his church, abandons their love for God to chase after their idols, God repeatedly calls that act adultery. The book of Hosea, that's a book-length account of God's love for his people in spite of their continual pursuit of other lovers. Jeremiah uses the same picture, writing it roughly the same period. Most of the prophets have the same word picture included within it, that as the people are chasing after other loves, other gods, they're committing adultery against God. The most shocking, probably the most graphic passage in all of Scripture, in my opinion, is God's account of the adultery of his people in Ezekiel 23 and 24. Adultery is against God, and God hates it. So we shouldn't commit adultery, not just because we made a promise to our spouse that we're now breaking, and not just because it devours someone else in our sin rather than the love that we should have for them, but also because when when we commit adultery against our spouse, we've already committed it against God, the one to whom we're supposed to be faithful. So how do we do this? What does it look like for us to commit adultery today? Well, I'll give uh, three larger categories with some more specific examples in each as our answer to this second question. Uh, First, we commit adultery exactly how you think we do. When we engage in sexual activity outside the bond of marriage, we've committed adultery. So yes, you having sex as a married person with someone other than your spouse, that's adultery. And I'll give some sneakier ways that we commit adultery in a moment, some less obvious ways that we commit adultery in a moment. But I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that we don't need to be reminded of the tempting evil that obvious and clear adultery actually is. According to the Institute for Family Studies, as of 2017, 16% of Americans have cheated on their spouse. And that's just the number of people who were willing to mark, yes, I have cheated on my spouse whenever they got a survey from the Institute for Family Studies. Okay, in our room on a Sunday morning today, that would be about 12 people. That's a lot. That's such a huge number. And while, yes, regular church attendance, that's a significant factor in reducing these percentages, that's true, it's not like the factor then goes from 16 down to zero. 
Okay, we're kidding ourselves if we think that adultery only happens to other people. If we think that there is no one in our church, in this room, who has committed adultery. If we think there never will be anyone in this room who will commit adultery. We need to be reminded of its evil because it's so common and so evil. It happens. And it's serious. It wrecks marriages. It splits churches. It warps children. And it demolishes trust. Sometimes beyond the point of rebuilding it. It's a big enough deal that Jesus cites adultery explicitly as a legitimate reason for divorce. As a legitimate way, a legitimate reason to break the covenant bond of marriage. In the Old Testament, adultery came with the death penalty. Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It's serious. And before you think that you're off the hook here, simply because you haven't had sex with someone who isn't your spouse, let me clear some things up. Let me give some less obvious ways that you may have actually committed adultery and yet are not currently thinking that you have. Affairs of the heart, those are still adultery. So you messaging that friend from high school that you reconnected with over Facebook for months, that's probably adultery. Dirty talk or sexting, that's adultery. Pornography use, that's adultery. Any sexual activity that is outside the bond of marriage with your spouse and only your spouse is adultery. And if you're sitting there right now thinking about something that I didn't mention, if you're thinking about something that you are caught in and you're wondering, I wonder if that counts. I wonder if that's adultery. The answer is yes. It's sin. It's wicked. And it's way more common than we may tend to think. But just as with murder a few weeks ago, it's not like we get to simply obey the negative, do not, and think that we've then obeyed the fullness of this command. It also has an implied positive, do not commit adultery, the negative, but do exercise sacrificial love and faithfulness toward your spouse, the positive. Just because you're not actively cheating on them doesn't mean that you're sacrificially loving them. Okay, you don't get to claim to be the husband that God has called you to be simply because you haven't gone to a hotel room with a friend from work. If you're abandoning them practically, emotionally, or sexually, adultery may not be the the first word that I would use to describe what you're doing, but it's not like your husband of the year or anything. So that means that I think some of us probably have some apologizing to do. Some of us haven't spoken as highly of our spouse as we should have to other people. Some of us haven't gotten off the couch as often as we should have to help with the dishes. Some of us haven't listened as intently as we should have while they were talking. Some of us haven't exercised sacrificial love and faithfulness to our spouse. And if we're all being honest, some of us, it's actually all of us here. We all fall short of this. It's not directly adultery, but it's not the opposite of adultery either. 
And that same principle, that applies to your heavenly spouse as well. If you are wavering in love or faithfulness to God, then you're stepping out on him. You're chasing your satisfaction somewhere else. You're saying that he, the God of the universe, isn't enough to fulfill you. He's not enough to meet your needs. God Almighty is not worthy of your singular gaze, of your singular focus on him, forsaking all others. It's spiritual adultery for you to claim any kind of commitment to God while worshiping anything else, anyone else. Whatever idols you might have, those are your mistresses. And every act of devotion that you give to them, that steals the faithfulness which is rightly reserved for God. Your lover may be money or food, maybe power or sex. It might be works-based self-righteousness or it might be blatant hedonistic hypocrisy. But every sin that you commit with them, that is snapping the covenant of love on your end between you and the God who saved you. We are adulterers against our spouses, every one of us, even more than we might think, as we'll see in a moment. We spurn their love, not only explicitly and sexually, but by being poor husbands and wives as well. And every sin that we commit, that breaks our covenant vow with our heavenly groom. We are a people in desperate need for someone who is not like us. Someone who will fulfill this command not to commit adultery. Someone who will atone for our sins when we do. And Jesus has done these things. To answer our third question this morning, he's fulfilled this command by remaining entirely faithful. And he's transformed it by elevating lust to the same status as adultery. Jesus never actually committed adultery. This might seem obvious to you since he wasn't married, the Da Vinci Code notwithstanding. But as we'll talk about in a moment, and as we've already kind of seen, the bar for fulfillment for this command isn't just to be a married person who doesn't have sex with someone who isn't your spouse. That's not the bar. That's way too low. The bar is much higher than that. The bar is sexual morality, faithfulness in whatever stage of life that you are. So for Jesus, who is single, that means no sexual thoughts or lust, no sexual acts, his whole life. Scripture says that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Now, that temptation didn't come internally within Jesus because he wasn't already predisposed towards sin as the God-man, as God in the flesh with his human nature. He didn't have an internal predisposition to where he was naturally disposed toward lust. But he had eyes. Though he didn't have a fallen sin nature like we do, he had a body. He was a young man in the world and somehow made it through his whole life without looking lustfully at a woman. He was absolutely sexually pure every second of every day, which fulfills the command. Both the negative don't and the positive do. But though he wasn't literally married as a man, Christ is the groom to the bride of his church. 
And he has remained absolutely faithful to his bride, even though we keep cheating on him. I've mentioned several times that the union between man and woman is a picture of the union between Christ and the church. I'm getting that from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. I'll read those. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, did you see the love that Christ has for his bride in those verses? He gives himself up for her. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her. He presents her in splendor as holy. He nourishes and cherishes her. He loves her. Christ is the perfect picture of marital faithfulness toward his church. Though he has every right, every warrant to abandon us because of our unfaithfulness, instead he holds fast to us in love for us. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. And for people who are so sinful, people who Christ will show us can't actually keep ourselves from adultery, even against our earthly spouse who we can see, much less our heavenly spouse who we can't see. People who are that sinful, people who are like us, people who are adulterers, we need his fidelity. We need him to fulfill the law on our behalf so that our sins, even those of adultery, don't have to now be counted against us. Now, through his perfect life in our place, his sacrificial death in our place, and his glorious resurrection for us to make a place for us, now, because of his gospel, rather than being counted as sinners before God, because Christ came to fulfill the law and to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins before victoriously rising from the grave, we can now be counted as righteous by grace through faith. Even adulterers like us, we can be given his righteousness in the place of our sinfulness. That's the gospel. That's the good news of who Christ is and what he did for us. And we desperately need this good news, this gospel, that by repentance and faith in who Christ is and what he's done, we can be saved from our sins because we are all, every one of us, adulterers. Christ makes that absolutely clear in how he's transformed this command. In the Sermon on the Mount, just after Jesus elevated anger as the source of murder, he did something similar with lust and adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus isn't reducing the restrictions of the law. He's not abolishing the law. He's not lessening the requirement of the law. He's doubling down on the restrictions of the law. He's expanding them. He's raising those bars. He's upholding do not commit adultery. And he's adding to that even adultery of the heart, which includes just looking lustfully at someone even once. Now, we need to be careful here, though, just as we were with murder, that he's not simply saying that these sins are equal, that it's all the same, that anger and murder are actually the same thing, that lust and adultery are actually the same thing. Therefore, once you've actually already committed lust, you might as well go all the way to adultery because it's the same thing in God's eyes. He's not saying that those sins are the same thing. What he's doing is he's pointing out that you can't simply check the box here if you haven't had sex with someone beside your spouse. You can't say, check, not an adulterer. Nailed that one. Let's move on. Let's get to theft and see if I've done that one. No, a a lustful gaze, an eye toward the consumption of another person for your own sexual gratification. Though it's not bodily adultery, it's also sin. It's adultery of the heart. He's pointing out the sin that resides in the heart, even in those who may have remained faithful in our own eyes, even for those of us who think that we're fine, that we are not adulterers. Mark 7, verses 21 through 23 say this, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So what Jesus is doing is he's removing the option from people to think that we're okay because our bodies may technically be in line with the law. We haven't committed obvious bodily adultery yet, while our hearts are actually overflowing with sin. So just as all murder begins with anger, all adultery begins with lustful looks. And when you consider that looking lustfully might as well be adultery, that's when you understand, that's when you realize that this room is full of adulterers. That's when you realize we're not as good at keeping the Ten Commandments as we think we are. We're not as righteous in ourselves as we think we are. When your eyes dart to a specific part of the body, when you watch someone just a little bit too long, when you think about them just a little bit too long, though your body may technically be faithful, you haven't committed obvious adultery yet, your heart is wandering. But Jesus fulfilled this command perfectly for us by never wavering in his faithfulness by never allowing his eyes to go where they shouldn't have already been. But he's also transformed it by making sure that we're all aware of just how often we break this commandment not to commit adultery. So then where does that leave us? What do we do now in order to avoid committing adultery? And how do we handle it whenever that sin actually happens? Because it happens all the time. 
I think we obey this command by pursuing loving faithfulness to our spouse and loving faithfulness to Christ. Our aim in our relationship with our spouse is loving fidelity. That's, I'm saying that as the opposite of hateful adultery, that loving faithfulness is what we should pursue because we should avoid hateful adultery. And this goal does matter for them, for our spouse. It's an outward, relational goal. It's something that you can see that's uh, between you and another person. But you pursuing loving faithfulness toward your spouse, that's not like you're doing them a favor by not sinning against them. Okay, it's not that you would be better off spending your weekends at the Peppermint Hippo, but for their sake, you'll make the sacrifice of remaining faithful to them. That the, the sin benefits them, but you would be better off if you were just able to commit it. Your pursuit of faithfulness toward your spouse, toward your spouse it's vital It's necessary for your Christian faith. You cannot confidently claim to be a Christian and also maintain a relationship with your wife that isn't characterized by loving faithfulness. Paul makes this same point in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who commit adultery at the heart will not inherit the kingdom of God. Routine pornography users will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let me be clear that these sins aren't unforgivable. It's not that once you've committed adultery, once you've looked lustfully upon another woman, once you've uh, seen a single instance of pornography, that now, boom, you're done. Outside the kingdom, never to be welcomed in. You've missed your chance. It's not that anyone who has committed adultery, which I've actually argued is all of us, is automatically outside of the bounds of God's grace. But the one who is committing adultery is not in a good place. That's not a good sign. Yes, only sinners will be welcome in heaven. But every sinner who is welcome in heaven will have repented of his sins and therefore will no longer be characterized by them. So now your avoidance of adultery isn't only for their sake, it is also for the sake of your very soul. But remember here that we aren't simply trying to avoid hateful adultery. We're pursuing loving faithfulness. Love for your spouse is necessary to obey this command. Proverbs 5, verses 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
Okay, that doesn't sound like someone who is barely holding on to the scraps of his ruined marriage. That doesn't sound like someone who would rather be with someone else other than his wife. That sounds like the marriage we all want, doesn't it? A blessed fountain rejoicing in each other, filled at all times with delight, intoxicated always in love. That's Hollywood stuff. That's Shakespeare's dream. And let me also point out that included within this love is not merely a generic feeling. It's not just an impulse that you have toward your spouse. That love is something ethereal and out there that you kind of feel your way around, whether it's love or not. Within the context of those verses, that love is a sexual delight specifically in your spouse. That was actually part of Paul's remedy for avoiding sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 7 that each spouse gives to the other their conjugal rights. So if we want to be people who avoid adultery, part of that loving faithfulness is sexual delight in your spouses. Now, I want to be clear here also that the opposite of that, not enough sex, whatever that might mean, that's not then grounds for adultery, that because I can't get it here, I will go find it somewhere else, and that that is okay because I'm not getting it here. Sexual delight is supposed to be within the context of marriage, but when it's missing, that's not then a get-out-of-jail-free card to go off and commit adultery. It might be an excuse. It might be your excuse. It's just not a valid excuse. But we can't let that distortion take away the fact that love for your spouse should overflow in sexual love. And that's actually part of how we obey the seventh commandment to each other, not to commit adultery. But this love, even the sexual love, isn't real love. It doesn't count unless it's accompanied by faithfulness. It has to be loving faithfulness. It has to be love that is directed at the spouse and only the spouse, forsaking all others. So I think whatever that looks like for you, whatever steps have to be taken for your faithfulness to your spouse not to be in question, I think you have to take them. Whatever it takes for you to remain actually faithful, that's what you have to do. And I think we as a church should be conscious of this desire in every marriage in our midst. We should do our best to honor it, to pursue it. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. It might mean dressing differently than you currently do. It might mean we talk and text differently than we currently do, maybe in groups rather than one-on-one. That might mean that some of us have to or need to start observing the Billy Graham rule, that we're never alone with anyone of the opposite sex who is not our spouse. Maybe that's what it looks like. But I'm not saying any of these things as prescriptive because I don't think that that's what faithfulness has to look like, that you have to do these things in order to remain faithful. If you can remain faithful without them, then I think that's okay. But if you can't be faithful without them, then it's absolutely better to function a little strangely in other people's eyes than it is for you to be an adulterer. 
It's absolutely better for you to look a little weird, for you to be a little off, a little odd in the eyes of everybody else, for you to have what we would call a strange practice, maybe even an inconvenient practice, than for you to be an adulterer. So as much as I understand the pushback against purity culture, the pushback against the Billy Graham rule and a host of other things that come along with those things, I I get those pushbacks. I get that formally following certain rules doesn't actually fix the problem, that it's a problem of the heart, that if you're a sinner, you're going to be a sinner whether you're following the Billy Graham rule or not. That's true. But I don't think our problem is that we're being too careful in avoiding sin. I don't think that's possible. Okay, ask the hundreds of pastors every year who wreck their churches, who wreck their marriages due to an affair. Better yet, ask their wives if they wouldn't be better off with a little more caution rather than a little less. Whatever that might look like. You should seek to love your wife through your faithfulness to her. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We honor our marriages by our faithfulness. In this verse, we avoid God's judgment by our faithfulness. Let the marriage bed be held in honor and undefiled by your loving faithfulness toward your wife. So what do we do? We take every thought captive. We don't cave to our lustful desires. We don't allow those to continue. We don't allow those to grow. We don't allow those thoughts to keep going toward their end. We certainly don't allow those desires to grow into actions. We pursue loving faithfulness to our spouses. But our loving faithfulness, which is necessary to avoid adultery, necessary to obey the command, That can't only be toward our spouse. We have to also exhibit loving faithfulness to Christ. As his bride, we, the church, must be lovingly lovingly faithful to him as well. So we don't stray. We don't wander. We're not looking for other loves to satisfy us. We don't move on past his gospel past his sacrifice on our behalf, which actually initiates our union to him. So what do we do? We, we seek to be lovingly faithful to him, to his commandments. We seek to do what he said, to love him by obeying him. We aim our love, we aim our affections at Christ, holding him to be our greatest and dearest love. And we obey not only this command, but all others remaining faithful to him as he remains faithful to us. If you want to not commit adultery, the way that you do that is to love and remain faithful to your spouse, yes. But it's also to love and remain faithful to your Christ even more. It's to obey what he has said, to respond to his work by grace through faith, with repentance and belief, that you might be welcomed into his bride, his church, and enjoy a marital union with the God of the universe. That's what it looks like for you not to commit adultery. And that's the remedy for whenever you do and have committed adultery. 
that you trust in his response, his faithfulness, his atonement for your sin, so that now, because of his gospel, even you, an adulterer, can be saved. And then you continue that life of faithfulness, pursuing loving faithfulness toward him and your spouse for the rest of your days. Let's pray.